I may have told you the story before when, when we were, um, when my wife and I were young and stupid uh, and we were interested in buying our first home, <clears throat> we were living in a, a little section of Dallas called Oak Cliff, which if you drive through West Asheville, it will be very reminiscent of that place if you want to know what it's like. Uh, and so, you know, not knowing anything about what it means to look at a house or to buy a house, we, we saw this one place that, uh, you know, let's just call it what it was, it was a fixer-upper. And so we walk in there, and, and it's in moments like that that um, you, you discover uh, what is both common and distinct about you and your spouse. She, she looks around with you know, this wide gleam in her eye of all the potential, and, and I'm more like, um, uh, which character is it in, in the Muppets? Um, Beaker. Me, 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 right? Like frightened, terrified about what the prospect is, right? So that's where we were. And, and then in walks our realtor, and the realtor looks around and, and um, surveys the wondrousness of it all and, and then says to us, my, I, I thought I was optimistic. <laughs> and suddenly that had a profound effect on how we were thinking about what we were seeing and walking through. We did not buy that house. But in a moment like that, we were, it was probably as, probably as, as trustworthy as a tent. <laughs> and yet we hoped that it might be transformed into something beautiful and wonderful. We have been talking for several weeks now um, some of the most poignant and, and descriptive words that the Apostle Paul ever spoke about resurrection and how what becomes of us is something far more than we ever knew or could, could ever imagine. And, and a few weeks ago, we talked about how the resurrection, just as an idea, is certainly preferable to the alternative. Who of us would not want to live in a world in which resurrection were in fact true of the future? That's preferable. But, but always, even as you say that, and as even we said that week, the question is, is it plausible? Um, I've never seen a resurrected person. I probably take it on good authority that neither have you. So the question is, as preferable as we might want it to be, is it plausible? And Paul sees, it, Paul sees us coming a mile away. And what he's going to do in this next-to-last passage of 1 Corinthians 15 is to, is to flesh out, if you will, no pun intended, the plausibility of resurrection. And he's going to do so in a way that you might find rather odd. He's going to point to analogies. He's going to point to arguments. And he's also going to point to an action. And what we want to do in this passage is, again, consider the plausibility of it. And, and, and I think what he's going to say is this. If you want to consider the plausibility of resurrection, three things have to happen. You have to look down and up, around and beyond, and back and forth. Down and up, around and beyond, back and forth. What could he mean? Who knows? Let's stand and let's hear what he has to say here in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 35. Our central text for today is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed is its own body. 
For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so shall we bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's see it again. Everything that Paul has to say is in response to a question that he anticipates from anyone in his day and from anyone in any day. Resurrection? With what kind of body? You know, like, what are we going to look like? What, what, what will that... What will that look like? And that's a very modern question, right? We, we hear about resurrection, so, and, and everything that we know or touch dies and decays. So what do you mean by resurrection, Paul? That's a very modern question. It's also a very ancient Greek philosophical question. If you were a Greek philosopher of the day, uh, you might have come to hear and even come to conclude that everything that is of the spirit is good, but anything that is of the flesh, hmm, leave it aside, not worth your time. That's a pretty prominent theme within much of Greek culture. The soon, as soon as we slough off this physical, material body, the better we will be. And as soon as we embrace our true spiritual condition, then you found life. So it's a different kind of way of thinking, but it's certainly the kind of questions that Paul was out to answer. And in this sense, and on the basis of that question, Paul would say, if you want to consider the plausibility of the resurrection, the only thing you have to do first is look down and up. Verse 36. You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. What Paul is saying is this, every foodstuff that you and I have ever consumed or uh, any other tree that you and I have ever taken refuge in, both the bread you eat and the tree whose shade you sat underneath, that was all really tiny once. Very small. And at some point, whatever it became was first of all buried in the ground. Sequoias, you ever go to California and you see the sequoias? They're 100 meters tall, average. But those sequoias started as a seed that was 3 millimeters this size. 
And now they're huge. Now they're immense. Now there's something that is almost too formidable to imagine. And before that ever became what it was, that seed had to be buried in the ground. It had to split open. It had to be buried there. It had to break open. It begins to sprout, and then boom. However many years later, you got this thing that's 100 meters tall. Whether it's in food or in trees, Paul is asking us to consider an analogy in those things. It's a picture. Whether it is of the bread we eat or of the trees we sit beneath, there is a certain kind of life that issues from a burial. It starts with a kind of burial, of being thrown into the ground and coming up and then being reconstituted into something that it was not. Nothing that we would imagine to seen it just upon the, the basis of what we first saw in its tiniest form. And, and what Paul is saying here is nothing that Jesus doesn't also say to himself. John chapter 12, what does he say? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. There's a certain kind of an agricultural burial that's on work here. That there's an, there's, a, there's an innumerable number of times in which what we see going on in seeds is replicated, and yet it is no less miraculous, even though it happens. And that fruit that comes forth is a fruit that comes forth through a certain kind of burial. Life from death. Now, it's not the same kind of burial. It's not the same kind of death that a body undergoes that is then followed by resurrection. But if life can issue from that kind of burial, why can't life issue from a different kind? He's pointing to an analogy. It's possible if you've ever gone on a walk in acorn tree country, that you would have to have come upon at least one moment in which an acorn falls in the ground and is buried and begins to sprout, but before it has a chance to, they come by and put a sidewalk pavement over it. And then within a few decades, what has happened? This acorn, buried in the ground of a certain mass that is rather negligible, has ended up sprouting up, breaking forth, growing, and just cracking the pavement above it. It's an analogy, but it's a potent analogy that when you look down and you look up, you see something that maybe makes sense that there's a certain plausibility to the idea of resurrection just in what we see in our ordinary lives. That's the first argument. You've got to look down, you've got to look up. But there's a second. He starts in the agricultural domain, and then he shifts both into the zoological and astronomical domain to make a second case for the plausibility of resurrection. And what does he say in verse 39? For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, whether for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, and they all differ from one another in glory. In the zoological realm, there's a point of plausibility. In the astronomical realm, there's a point of plausibility. What is he going for each? In my household, we have a, let's see if I can get all this right, a dog, a cat, we have chickens, we have a tarantula, we have guinea pigs, we have ants in a cage. I can't explain it. And then we also have children. So they're not all the same. There's a variety within them. There's a great deal of diversity among that host. 
within the zoo that is part of our world. There's a great deal of differentiation in that. And Paul is saying, well, wait a minute. Consider the multiple kinds of flesh that we encounter, even in the animal kingdom, even with humans. Could that not point to something that what we see in one kind actually can be true of something else in another kind? And when we look heavenward, when we look beyond our things, beyond our world, beyond our atmosphere, there's a whole difference in brilliance in what we see. Um, In glory, to borrow the word. Now, back in his day, in Paul's day, there were already these things called astronomers. Obviously, it's astronomers that show up or astrologers who show up at Jesus' birth. So there's people that are already looking heavenward, already looking beyond for some kind of indication of things that are true, of things that speak to the question that things sometimes don't, doesn't meet the eye. And even in that day, even though the whole luminosity scale would not show up until like the 1910, you walk outside, you look at the sun. But even Paul knows in his day that there are things that are even far beyond the sun that are even more luminous than the sun. Um, Arctur, or rather, Alpha Centauri, far, far, far away, the closest star in our in a closest star to us next to the sun, it's, a, it's 1.5 times more luminous than the sun if it were right next to it. Arcturus, let's see, 170 times more luminous than the sun. Betelgeuse, uh, 128,000 times more luminous than the sun. Who, who cares? What do you care? Here's the point. The diversity of kinds of flesh that we find in the animal kingdom and the difference in brilliance we find, whether it's the moon, the sun, or Alpha Centauri, there's an analogy there. An analogy that speaks to the plausibility of resurrection. There are differences in kinds of flesh, so why can't there also be a difference between what our body is now and what our body will be And just as there's difference in brightness of the stars, why is it impossible for us to think that that what we are now, we'll call it a certain brilliance or a certain glory, why do we feel like we're constrained by what we know of ourselves as it relates to what we might be in a future? What Paul is out to tell us is that don't be constrained in your thinking of what something can be simply by what features it reflects now. There's an analogy to be found both in differentiation and diversity and differences in glory. And all of those are analogies. And that's why it's at a point that Paul's trying to make like here where where both Shakespeare and Yoda agree. I know you're wondering if they could. What, What does Shakespeare say in The Tempest? We are such stuff as dreams are made on and our little life is rounded with a sleep. We're stuff as dreams are made on, Shakespeare says. And, and what does Yoda say? Luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. You're welcome. It's what we are. It's that intuition that finds its way into literature, into film, into any number of traditions that reflect long enough on the nature of our being and suggest to us that there may be something more to us than you can just poke, prod, diagnose, and discern. Now, um, I am aware uh, that these are analogies. I'm aware that analogies are not proofs. So why, why is there any potency to these analogies? Why are they not just sort of clever parallels that Paul is having us to consider? Let me, let me put it this way. In verse 38, do I have that slide? He says this, But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. 
The reason the analogies have a certain potency to them, the reason these analogies speak to the plausibility of resurrection is because God is God. You, people that have a problem with the resurrection, it's not really a problem with the resurrection, it's a problem with God. If you think there can't be a God or that God won't work in a certain way, then naturally you will rule out the possibility of resurrection. But if God is God, I, I think he has a certain capability. When we speak of things being buried in the ground, if God is all in all and all life is sourced in him and therefore the analogy of, of seed or of flesh, it works because God oversees what is life. And if, if there is great difference in, in kind and in luminosity and if yet God is responsible for everything there is, including quasars and, and nebulae and all those things that we've spoken of in the past, if God is responsible for all of that, then I think he would be capable of resurrection also. You and I are heirs of an enlightenment. You and I are heirs and beneficiaries of the advance of scientific investigation that is great my family benefits from the advances in science every day, and so does yours. So this is not me throwing science under the bus to make a, a philosophical or a theological point. It is just to suggest to us that our science has a certain limit. As profound and as robust as science might offer. And let me, let me just make that claim by appealing to one who is thought a thing or two about science and philosophy. There's a name I've mentioned to you in the past. His name is Thomas Nagel. He's a philosopher of science. He is as atheist as they come. He, he has been very candid at saying, if you ever see me reciting the Nicene Creed, do not conclude that I have come to faith. Instead, conclude that I have lost my mind. So this guy has no dog in the theological hunt. He's got no place for that. And yet, he wrote a book several years ago called Mind and Cosmos, in which he says this, it is on its face highly implausible that life as we know it is the result of a sequence of physical accidents together with the mechanism of natural selection. It flies in the face of common sense. Materialism is an explanation for a world we do not live in. The world is an astonishing place that it has produced you and me and the rest of us is the most astonishing thing about it. Friends, he is not encouraging faith in God and he is certainly not encouraging belief in the resurrection. He finds that highly implausible. But he also finds highly implausible the belief that everything that we are and everything that has come to be is just easily explained from a set of material mechanisms and processes that just given enough time, here we are. You look around and you look beyond and you listen to Thomas Nagel. You and I might have a reason for believing that the resurrection is plausible. That's an analogy. And there's a certain potency to it. But now I will be frank with you because you're probably already thinking this. Analogies are great. But analogies only go so far. Analogies are not proofs. They're hints, they're intimations that maybe speak to certain intuitions. But if you're going to hang your hat on analogies only, uh, it's a stretch. And I know it. And Paul does too. And that's why he doesn't ground the entirety of his argument here in, in verses 35 through 49 on just the idea of analogies. There's a third thing you've got to do. Not just look down and up, not just around and beyond. 
You've also got to look back and forth, and by that he means chronologically. When he's talking about looking back, he's talking about looking at our ancient ancestor, our primordial parent whom we know as Adam. And he's also talking about looking forward, namely the Lord of the future, whom we would call Jesus. We've, we've spoken of his ascension this morning, of his being seated at the right hand of his Father. He reigns, he prays, he sends his spirit, he exerts his influence, he is that one. And Jesus and Adam, Paul speaks of them as the first Adam and the last Adam, they have commonality. They're both human. They both are from God. Not in the same way, though. Uh, the first Adam is from God and is entirely contingent upon what God has done. Jesus himself is from God only in the sense that he is also God. He is of God. And in that sense, Jesus is a model. He's a picture. He's an example of what it means to be human. But he is more than an example. He's the one that doesn't just show us how to love. He's the one who's purchased us life. He's the one that's given himself for us. He's the one who's given us his spirit that it might indwell us, that it might have some sort of influence on us that is more than just appreciation or admiration, but something that is true, that is its own source of encouragement and rebuke sometimes and correction and all those things that we need in order to walk in the way of life. He has given us his spirit to encourage, to rebuke, to assure. But Jesus is not merely an analogy of resurrection. He's the prototype for it. If all we had were analogies, fine. But Jesus is more than an analogy. He's, he's the embodiment of it, literally. He's the first one. He's the first fruits of it. And apart from him and his resurrection, let's just say it, the case for the plausibility of the resurrection is rather thin. If there is no resurrection of Jesus, then you and I don't really have any right to be very optimistic that our body will become anything more than dust in time. That's why you've got to look back and forth. That's why you've got to see the thread between Adam and Jesus and why Jesus takes us to a place that Adam never could. What are you and I supposed to do with all that? How do we reckon with this case for the plausibility of resurrection? I'm going to land this plane by invoking a story from a very famous novel. It's written by Fyodor Dostoevsky. It's called The Brothers Karamazov. About three brothers. One of them is named Alyosha. And he's a seminary student in his 20s. And he has a mentor in the faith. One who is guiding his way, his pilgrimage. His name is Father Zosima. And Alyosha learns everything from Father Zosima he can. It's Father Zosima that tells him, love every leaf, every ray of light, love the animals, love the plants, love each separate thing. If you love each thing, you will perceive the mystery of God in all. He's saying, look for the analogies and what you find. He's telling him exactly what Paul is telling him here and telling us in verses 35 to 49. But then Father Zosima dies. And with an orthodox tradition of that day, there was a belief that if you were truly a holy saint, that after you died, your body would give off no awful odor. It would actually be sweet-smelling. And so Father Zosima's body lies in repose. Alyosha is crushed by it, and yet is still loving of the fact that his father has shown him the way, and yet in a few days, what happens? 
You know what happens. A stench is given off. And again, if you are operating on the premise that, that bodies that are truly holy and saintly do not give off a stench in time, then what happens to Alyosha? He is, he is mortified. This one who he thought had shown him all the ways about the love of God is now his body is smelling and both he is scandalized and the whole community is scandalized and he's just distraught because he thinks this apparently confirms that Zosima was not the figure I thought he was. And he is despairing. Well, a friend of Alyosha tries to cheer him up and he takes him out to a bar and brings him back to a, a little flat and there's a, a woman named Grushenka. Now, Grushenka is kind of like the town Jezebel, and that's as far as I'll go because I know this is a family show. But Grushenka was there set with a purpose and set on a purpose by Alyosha's friend. And somehow in the course of their conversation, Alyosha divulges to Grushenka that Father Zosoma has died. And she goes white as a sheet. She's terrified by the fact that Zosoma has died and, and because she had a great reverence for him even though she has not sought to live a life that would commend herself to him. And it's at that point that Grushenka feels this motivation to confess to Alyosha what she was planning to do. And it's at that point that Alyosha shows her kindness and forbearance and forgiveness. And when he does that for Grushenka, this is what she says. You are the first, the only one who has pitied me. I've been waiting all my life for someone like you. I knew that someone like you would come and forgive me. She's weeping at the way of which Alyosha has showed her kindness and forbearance and forgiveness and she is, she's just taken by that and she confesses what she was going to do and then she sort of gives up on that and she's grateful for his kindness. Alyosha goes home that night and he sits at the feet of the body of Father Zosima and he falls asleep and as he sleeps he dreams. And in that dream, he is at the wedding feast of Cana where Jesus turns the water into wine. And at the feast, Father Zosima. And Zosima comes to him and he says, you understand. You understand what I was trying to teach you. What you have shown Grushenka is precisely what I would have done. You understand the gospel. Alyosha wakes from his dream and rather than be scandalized by the fact that his father has a stench for his body, he is full of joy. Because in that moment he realizes this. The plausibility of the gospel was not tied up in whether or not his father's body would not give off an odor. No, the plausibility of the gospel came from what he discovered in the way of power of obedience. That to walk in the way of Jesus is its own argument for the persuasiveness of the gospel. Where I think this passage takes us is this. When Paul says in another letter that we all inhabit an earthly tent and in that tent we groan like that house that fortunately we did not buy. But we long to be clothed by something that is enduring, that is eternal. And he says whether we are at home with the Lord or in our body, we make one thing our aim, to please the Lord. Why? Because if you and I make it our aim to please the Lord, the one who gives us the hope of resurrection, that is perhaps just as persuasive an argument for the plausibility of resurrection as anything else we might hear. If we would walk in his way, 
it would confirm to us the truth of his way. That's why Jesus says, if anyone would walk in the will of the Lord, he will know whether my teaching is from myself or from God above. Look for all the reasons for the plausibility of the resurrection of you will, and that's fine. But please don't ever underestimate of walking in the way in Jesus and how that is its own persuasive way of commending unto you that he is risen. That's why we do it. Not to gain his favor, not to impress him with our virtue, but to be reminded that he is Lord. And in being reminded to also be persuaded. Hear the good news of the gospel, beloved. God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in him. In Christ, by God's grace, we're saved. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Beloved, go with this word of benediction. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen.